Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing one of the two authors of the book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. The book was written by Dr. Randy Barnett and Dr. Evan Burnick. Um, And the latter, Dr. Vernick, is here today to speak with us about the book um, in which they argue that the Supreme Court of the United States has long misunderstood or ignored the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and its key clauses that cover the privileges and immunity of citizenship, due process of law, and the equal protection of the laws. Um, They argue throughout the book in a lot of detail with a lot of really interesting examples, both in terms of history Um, but also in terms of what this would mean today um, if this interpretation of the 14th Amendment was actually uh, applied in the courts. So it's a fascinating study of something that is both historical and current. Um, So I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and grateful for the opportunity. So I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself, a bit of your background, and explain how the two of you came together to write the book. I am a constitutional law professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law, just started this year, actually. And before that, I was actually at Georgetown University Law School uh, or Law Center, where I was the executive director of the Center for the Constitution, which is uh, an institute within Georgetown that is dedicated to constitutional theory and in particular to originalism, looking for the original meaning of the Constitution. And that's where I worked with uh, with Randy. Um, we actually uh, had collaborated on several projects, one in which we laid out our basic theory of constitutional interpretation and construction that we apply in this book. Uh, But the immediate inspiration for this book was actually an email from Randy to me suggesting that we work together on a project that criticized another account of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And at the time, I was relatively unencumbered. So I said, well, yeah, let's let's do that. Um, But then the project kind of took on a life of its own. And before we knew it, uh, we were both convinced that we had a story to tell about the 14th Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause in particular that hadn't been told, that was very important, and that ended in a place where we were making distinctive claims about the original meaning and purpose of this amendment that would uh, have a huge impact on American law if taken consistently seriously. So that's how the seed that became this book was planted, Uh, an email saying, hey, maybe we should read and respond to this uh, guy that we disagree with. All right. Well, that's, I'm sure, a very sort of motivating way to start. You have a clear goal in mind. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So given that you've sort of talked a little bit about the idea that this is very much engaging with debates around interpretation, um, could you explain for us how you place yourselves and the arguments of this book within those debates, um, especially around originalism and the construction of the letter and spirit of the Constitution? So in one important respect, uh, in one important respect, we are um, adopting what has become the dominance approach within originalism to constitutional interpretation. And that means that we are committed to um, inquiring into and giving effect to the original meaning communicated to members of the public at the time that the Constitution was ratified. We are public meaning originalists. Uh, Public meaning originalism, as distinct from original intent originalism that focused on the intentions of the framers of constitutional provisions, is now the dominant view of how one should do originalism. What makes us distinctive is what we do when we conclude that original meaning just isn't clear enough to dictate a particular outcome with respect to some case or some broad set of issues. And this is our move from the letter, public meaning of the Constitution, to the spirits, which is what we identify as the original function or purpose of a constitutional provision. And we argue that in cases where the original meaning of the Constitution doesn't give you clear answers, which can happen pretty often, um, judges should develop doctrines that are designed to give effect to the original purposes of constitutional clauses. So the letter stuff, most originalists do that. Uh, The spirit stuff is our distinctive contribution to originalism. And we fleshed that out in a couple of papers before we began with this book. And throughout the book, you do look at those in sort of distinctive pieces that build on each other, um, which I think is quite helpful for um, helping readers and potentially listeners of this episode understand sort of how you look at the letter sort of by itself, the spirit by itself, and then what putting those together really means. Mm So one of the things you open the book with is um, a letter written in 1871 by Supreme Court Justice Bradley um, about the 14th Amendment. And quite interestingly to the reader, uh, this letter from 1871 seems to lay out quite a number of the arguments that you address in this book published in 2022. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this letter and the significance of it uh, to the both of you in writing this book. So this is a letter that is written by um, Justice Joseph Bradley several years after the ratification of the 14th Amendments in connection with a case that he is deliberating about at the time. And originalists have learned to be, for understandable reasons, wary of evidence of original meaning that is or wary of using uh, evidence that postdates the ratification of the Constitution or a constitutional provision to shed light on the meaning of that provision because things can change over the course of time and original understandings can be lost. Um, But Justice Bradley's account of the original meaning, his understanding of the original meaning of the three big rights-guaranteeing clauses in the 14th Amendment, Uh, is compelling to us, not because it provides compelling evidence of what the clause originally meant, but because 
based on the investigation that we conduct over the course of this book, uh, it's pretty much right. So he has our view of the Privileges or Immunities Clause that includes uh, rights associated with American citizenship that are sometimes listed in the text of the Constitution in what we call the Bill of Rights, the First Eight Amendments, but also rights that are not listed in the Constitution, but have endured for a long period of time and are associated with citizenship. Um, With respect to due process of law, he doesn't talk a ton about that, but he talks about equal protection as a guarantee, this is the Equal Protection Clause, of protection against not only state action that's discriminatory, but failure to protect against private violence. So the Equal Protection Clause is a guarantee of protection against private violence. That in particular is an understanding that really has been lost in Supreme Court case law um, over the course of um, the past century and a half since Bradley wrote that letter. And one of the reasons that we foreground this letter, first of all, is because it's an interesting historical discovery that uh, Professor Barnett made. And second of all, because it really does anticipate some of the basic arguments that we make about the meaning of this of this um, important amendment. It was quite interesting to see. I think it was every piece of your argument except one, I believe, was in that letter, um, which was a really interesting way to start the book almost as a sort of summary. Um, right. So moving from the sort of historical, so 1871, obviously, um, I was wondering if you could tell us about why we should care about this beyond just the history. So how would applying your rethinking of the 14th Amendment in practical context today change judicial understandings of the amendment, um, but actually, as you argue, maybe make fewer changes to decisions that have already been made than one might expect by the idea of reinterpreting an amendment. So you're right that what part of what we argue is that a lot of the conclusions that we reach are already conclusions that the Supreme Court has reached, albeit through other means than we suggest. So the Supreme Court has, um, uh, in cases interpreting the Due Process Clause, of the 14th Amendment, recognized, guaranteed, and protected rights that we say are better understood as being protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. For example, we argue that the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, because it's a right that's listed in the text of the Constitution and was deeply associated with citizenship, is best understood as protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. But the Supreme Court has said it is incorporated against the states by the Due Process Clause. Okay, so no big deal there. Um, The bigger deal really comes in the form of differences between what the Supreme Court has said is guaranteed by the 14th Amendment at all and what we say is. So... Probably the most vivid example of this, and I alluded to this in discussing the the letter, is that the Supreme Court has said that the 14th Amendment guarantees to people protection only against state action. It doesn't speak to state failures to protect people's basic rights. 
um, and it doesn't constrain the activity of non-state actors. And we argue, based on our understanding of the concept of equal protection as it was understood first by abolitionists during the antebellum period and then by Republicans from uh, whom the abolitionist movement fed into, that it's actually the Equal Protection Clause includes more than protection against state action. It includes protection against private violence. So this would immediately change the results in a string of Supreme Court cases holding, for instance, uh, in a case called United States v. Morrison, that Congress can't enact a remedy for victims of gender-motivated violence, can't empower victims of gender-motivated violence to seek civil remedies in the courts because such violence is private violence, private action, therefore not state action, therefore beyond Congress's power to enforce the 14th Amendment. Um, So that's a good example of a definite change we would make. In general terms, part of what we're doing is saying the Supreme Court has gotten a number of things right, momentously right, but it has done so for reasons that are not consistently particularly persuasive and have caused some unwarranted doubts about whether those decisions are correct. And also it's gotten things that are flat out wrong. And I suppose the third thing that we criticize the court for is not having a good uh, framework for making these kinds of decisions in the future. It has this uh, gauzy, uh, very vague approach to identifying and protecting fundamental rights that we try to improve upon by providing a formula that is more precise and, in our view, more consistent with the function of the 14th Amendment. Okay. Thank you for explaining that to us. Um, I think that's something that usefully highlights sort of the way that this has been a continued debate. Um, And this is your book is a useful addition and contribution to it. Um, So to get into the sort of meat of the particular interpretation that you're arguing, um, why do you argue that we should understand the due process clause or clauses as instead the due process of law clauses? Why does adding the two words of law make it much clearer? So the core reason that we do this is to to fight against an intuition that really has dominated discussion of what, what is usually called the due process clause means to the effect that the due process clause is about process. And we argue that that shorthands, due process clause, misleads people into rejecting before they've even done the digging into the history. Um, The idea that the due process of law clause might not just impose restrictions on the procedures through which the government can take away your life, liberty, or, or property, but also place restrictions on the content of laws themselves. So due process clause, you're thinking just process, common law rights like fair notice, an opportunity to be heard, uh, a neutral arbiter, maybe a jury. 
Um, we argue that that understanding of due process is correct, but it's incomplete. Due process of law, as it was understood at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified, had come to stand for a, a broad guarantee against arbitrary efforts to deprive people of their life, liberty, or property for reasons that don't serve any legitimate governmental purpose. You know, the... Um, uh, the discourse involved examples like taking from A and giving to B simply because A was more powerful. Um, deprivations of life, liberty, or property that didn't conduce to the general welfare of all, but were just designed to benefit particular groups or harm particular groups. And by talking about this concept as due process of law, we get out of this trap that starts to load the dice against any interpretation that would push us beyond this core of procedural rights. Okay, that I think makes a lot of sense. And for listeners who are interested in more examples of how that would play out, I encourage you to read the book. Um, Another aspect that I found particularly interesting was your use of the floor and ceiling metaphor to describe the functions of privileges or immunity, due process of law and equal protection clauses how does that metaphor help us understand how these clauses interact in actual practice in determining and defining civil rights? Good. So the floor and the ceiling metaphor is designed to illustrate the idea that although there were certain rights that Republicans who uh, drafted and presented for ratification the 14th Amendments um, wanted to secure, absolutely thought were non-negotiable. They had proven their worth as means of securing liberty and civic equality for so long that we could not um, go below them. These were rights like the freedom of speech, the free exercise of religion, uh, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to, as a citizen, have access to publicly funded institutions free of arbitrary discrimination. Those were non-negotiable. But the ceiling uh, is designed to illustrate that Republicans had a conception of privileges or immunities that allowed for the recognition based on experience that rights that had not previously been seen as fundamental to citizenship could be proven to be fundamental over the course of time. So we argue that the Privileges or Immunities Clause sets a floor consisting of rights like those listed in the Bill of Rights, um, listed in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which Republicans wanted to put beyond constitutional doubts, and rights that were widespread and deeply entrenched in the states at the time, but also left room for the development of new rights through the same basic processes, either through the recognition by a broad number of states for an extended period of time that this was centrally important to citizenship, or through a subsequent constitutional amendments, and a ceiling could be built out of those newly recognized guarantees. You can't go below the floor, but you can continue to build up and up and raise the ceiling. It was a good metaphor. Um, I'm sure it's very helpful to your students as well as your readers. Um, Going back to one of the things you talked about towards the beginning about 
your contribution that you're particularly making in the book, the idea that um, how to resolve when original public meaning doesn't quite make things clear enough. Um, in the book, you two offer three steps to good faith interpretation and construction. That's a quote, good faith construction, a good faith interpretation and construction. Um, can you introduce us to what these three steps are and sort of how you came up with them, given that this was quite obviously a gray area? Right. So this is a gray area. It is not something that originalists have um, uh, have converged upon an answer to dealing with the question of what you should do when the meaning of the Constitution runs out. But we do develop a framework for resolving it uh, and even developing a framework for resolving it is something that is kind of new under the sun with respect to originalism. Um, originalists had, including my co-author, to this point actually suggested that originalism just might not speak to what happens when the Constitution runs out, when original meaning runs out. And what we say is, no, there's there's something that one can do that is genuinely originalist um, when the Constitution runs out. And the first step, of course, is to determine the meaning of the letter. Throw every resource you have at the question of what this text means. Try as best you can to determine what language games were being played at the time that the Constitution was ratified. And only then, only then, uh, turn to the spirits. And, okay, having failed to do that or having done that and finding that the answer isn't clear, what do you do? Well, you try to determine what functions the text was designed to perform at the time that it was ratified into law. And this inquiry is going to look a lot like the inquiry into original meaning. You'll be looking at a bunch of people talking not just about what these words mean, but what effects in the world they are designed to produce. Um, and one, a uh, couple of resources that I want to highlight that uh, we rely upon again and again are um, uh, ratification campaign statements made by Republicans who were responsible for framing the 14th Amendment about what they had just done meant when they were on the campaign trail seeking to get the amendment ratified. The other source that we look to that kind of makes uh, what we do distinctive is the records of what were called at the time the Colored People's Conventions, but I'll just refer to as the Black Conventions. These were conventions of Black Americans um, who met together and developed um, demands for legal recognition and protection and spoke a great deal about what they understood citizenship to mean. And we look to those sources for evidence of original meaning um, that is all too often neglected in originalist scholarship. Okay, so now we know what the clause was designed to do. Well, now what do we do? Well, as a judge, we now are charged with, in good faith, in this context, that means consistently with the purpose for which you have been given the discretion to implement this clause. Develop a doctrine that will implement the function of this clause. We argue that judges should be seen as fiduciaries of the people, that they are empowered by the people 
to perform a certain task, that of interpreting law. And in doing that, they enjoy a great deal of discretion like any fiduciary, like an agent, like a guardian, like um, a financial advisor or other person who has a great deal of responsibility over somebody else's assets. And they need to exercise that consistently with the purposes of the document that gives them this power. And that document here is the Constitution. That makes a lot of sense. It's very clearly laid out. Um, And so how can, therefore, the government using this method identify, as you quote in the book, the particular civil rights that are the privileges or immunities of capital R Republican citizenship? Right. So with respect to identifying the capital R Republican citizenship rights, you have immediate resources just given to you by the letter of the clause. Um, We adduce a lot of evidence that certain rights would have just been understood based on what people understood privileges or immunities to be to be included by the guarantee of the privileges or immunities of citizenship. And those include those listed, uh, rights listed in the Bill of Rights, right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, free exercise of religion, those rights, rights that are listed in the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866. um, Those are just going to go in with the letter. Okay, well, what about other rights? How do we go about identifying them? And for those rights, we say what judges should do when trying to determine whether a particular right is a privilege or immunity of citizenship or not, is to determine whether this right is widespread in the states, specifically whether a supermajority of the states, two-thirds of the states, um, have recognized this right and extended it to citizens for 30 years. So a generation and a supermajority. That's the framework that we say judges should follow. Um, When it comes to the edges of this framework, it is in a certain sense arbitrary. Why not 31 years rather than 30 years? Um, Why two-thirds of the states rather than two-thirds plus one? Um, But the argument that we make for this formula is that um, two-thirds supermajority is what's required to make a constitutional amendment. And when judges are recognizing new privileges or immunities of citizenship, they are doing something that is similar um, to the ratification of an additional constitutional amendment, although, of course, not identical. And the 30 years is just designed to roughly track the amount of time that that needs to pass before you can really get a sense of whether a right really is essential to citizenship, whether it does promote individual liberty and civic equality, or whether it has a negative effect. And so talking about kind of, to a degree, the impact of this, you argue in the book that the Equal Protection of Laws Clause, as you interpret it, quote, recognizes a positive right to have one's negative liberty secured by the state which was, among other things, an incredibly concise way of summing up a very large argument. Can you Mm -hmm. expand a bit on this, please? 
Sure. So the negative positive right distinction is basically the distinction uh, between freedom from and freedom to. If you have a negative right, that means you have a claim to be free from government to a certain extent. If you have a positive right, then you have a right to claim something from the government to a certain extent. And what we argue is that Republicans who operated generally within a framework according to which the purpose of government was to, at its very basic level, protect natural rights, and in this sense, protect negative rights, because negative uh, natural rights are rights that you could enjoy in the state of nature where there's no government at all. And But they recognize that one of the basic functions of an existing state is to ensure through you know, infrastructure, institutions, um, that uh, one's freedom from both the government and other people is protected. You get out of this initial um, commitment to natural rights, also a positive right to protection, protection from the government and protection by the government against other people. And this was particularly important to abolitionists, and the enslaved people for whom they fought and for whose rights they advocated, because during the antebellum period, even in you know the southern, even in the northern states that were relatively um, you know less oppressive when compared to states that outright embraced chattel slavery, um, couldn't speak without fear of being attacked by angry mobs who thought they were sowing disunion and encouraging anarchy. So the need for protection from private violence and not just, you know, state officials that were determined to impose white supremacy was something that was incredibly important to abolitionists. And it also became important to supporters of the Union in the wake of the Civil War. Um, Former Confederate states, after they lost the Civil War, um, quickly developed uh, a bunch of laws that were designed to keep black people in a state of subjugation and also to punish their allies in various respects. Um, but the other thing that they did was simply allow um, sympathizers of the Confederacy to attack and otherwise deprive uh, uh, black people and the white a- their white allies of their rights. Um, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan uh, took place after, uh, in the wake of Reconstruction, and um, the Equal Protection Clause was in, t- it, it was in part designed to empower Congress to take actions through enforcement acts to protect people against Klan violence. And so what sort of repercussions would interpreting the 14th Amendment essentially fully, as you argue in the book, would that have for things today? So for one thing, it would upend Supreme Court case law that basically says that Congress has only a limited amount of space to act in order to protect people's rights against uh, private violence. Um, Really, the Supreme Court has said that there's very little that that, uh, Congress can do about that to begin with. Um, and that means things like the Violence Against Women Act can't get enacted. That means things like um, uh, a hate crime act that's designed to protect people against hate crimes is at least constitutionally vulnerable in ways that it wouldn't otherwise be. 
that means um, police departments that end that either engage in a pattern of practice of not just over policing and violating the rights of Black Americans, but actually failing to um, go into certain neighborhoods or provide protection um, for reasons that are, uh, you know, are invidious, um, would not be able to do so without fear of constitutional repercussions. A lot of implications there. Um, So moving sort of to the Obviously, I, we cannot possibly go into every detail of the argument um, that you make in the book, and that's something that listeners can go read the book for if they're interested in them. Um, but this gives a sort of really important overview of kind of what you're looking at and why it's important. Um, but we are academics, so I do want to ask a little bit about the process of writing the book, uh, which we touched on very briefly at the beginning. Um, but was there something particularly surprising that you discovered or found in the process of writing the book? It can be something big, small, maybe it didn't make it into the book at all. Um, But I always find it's really interesting uh, because you both are obviously the ones that are the closest to writing the book of all of the detail in it. Um, So is there anything in particular that jumped out at you or that you remember jumping out at you in the process? Uh, I think the big thing that jumped out at me was just the degree to which abolitionists and Republicans embraced an understanding of the antebellum constitution and its guarantees that was very legally unorthodox and unpopular and worked through grassroots activism and eventually through, um, uh, the you know the ordinary processes of legislation and constitutional politics uh, to entrench this once radical and unpopular understanding into the law of the land. So abolitionists held what was at the time a totally wacky view that even before the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments were enacted, um, actually black people uh, had a constitutional right not to be enslaved, had a constitutional right to have certain basic rights of citizenship protected, and at least a few of them actually believed that those rights included the right to suffrage. Um, that certainly was not mainstream, and the Republican Party that eventually came to power didn't totally embrace all of those claims but they embraced important aspects of them, including this idea that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 of the original Constitution um, wasn't, as antebellum lawyers tended to think that it was, just a guarantee of protection against parochial discrimination. You know, you're from out of state, you come into the state, you get discriminated against because um, you're not from there. That was the antebellum understanding of that clause. Abolitionists and then Republicans took the view that, no, what that clause means is that anybody who goes into any state, even people who are just in those states and don't leave, are entitled to certain fundamental rights associated with citizenship that states can't deprive them of. And that weird, at the time, understanding of the Privileges and Immunities Clause as this guarantee of fundamental basic rights then gets implemented through the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
So this wacky understanding becomes mainstream and ratified into our constitutional law. And that's just a remarkable thing. Um, you know, there's this impulse to think that, or at least uh, among some originalists, to think that um, the uh, that there's there's always the the ones that eventually win the constitutional day are the ones with the better legal arguments, and actually the better legal arguments or the better as they were seen at the time would have repudiated the Republicans' understanding of the Constitution, but it didn't matter because they had the numbers, they had the mass politics, and they eventually changed the law in the image of what they thought it always was. And that I found remarkable and kind of inspiring. I think remarkable in its truest sense of the word is exactly what that is. So thank you for sharing it with us. Um, And for my final question, the traditional question that does always feel a little bit mean to ask someone who's just finished a massive book project. Um, But what are you and Dr. Barnett working on next? So speaking for myself, because I have no current plans to to continue working with Dr. Barnett, much as I've enjoyed working with him, um, I don't mean that to come off the wrong way, but... um, there are some things that we do see differently. And one of the things that is really distinctive to me and my interests um, is what I have found in my exploration specifically of the, the right to confront witnesses as it developed during the antebellum period. Um, one of the things that originalists have focused on uh, in recent years is trying to understand if um, the the rights that were listed in the Bill of Rights in 1791 became to be understood differently during the antebellum period. And if so, what that means for the 14th Amendment, which applies these rights to the states. And I've uncovered a treasure trove of evidence uh, as a consequence of spending a lot of time with abolitionist history, in particular resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 that abolitionists began to understand the right to confront witnesses as demanding far more, being far more protective of individual criminal defendants than it ever was during the founding era. And that by the time that we get a 14th Amendment, we have a new, more robust confrontation clause. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, Why is that important? It's important because in one of the leading confrontation clause uh, cases of recent years, uh, Justice Scalia, an originalist writing for the majority in Crawford v. Washington, focused almost exclusively on founding era evidence and Anglo-American history preceding the founding in trying to determine what confrontation meant. And the result was a confrontation clause that was more robust than in previous the previous case law, which is very deferential to the government. But I'm going to argue it's not nearly as protective of criminal defendants' rights as original meaning circa 1868 would require. Um, so that's the one thing that I'm doing. The other major thing that I'm doing is um, articulating a vision of what's equal protection as I've... Um, come to understand it in originalist sources means that is supportive of, and this might seem to be surprising given what I found with respect to protection, um, supportive of 
what are ongoing efforts by um, a group of social movements that I'm going to collectively refer to as the Movement for Black Lives, efforts to reduce the footprint of policing. The running title of this article is actually, Is Policing Unconstitutional? And I draw upon the history of policing and the history of the 14th Amendment to argue that um, the protection promised by the 14th Amendment and the purpose for which the 14th Amendment was placed in the Constitution was in significant part to eliminate a form of subjugation that routinely takes place under current constitutional doctrine and has led to some of the um, you know, highly publicized instances of police violence that have rightly um, raised deep questions about the scope and scale of the carceral state. Well, it certainly sounds like you're going to be very busy, um, despite having just finished this large project. Um, so thank you very much for spending some time with us on the podcast um, and for listeners who are interested, reminder that the book is titled The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. Um, and it was written by Dr. Randy Barnett and our guest here today, Dr. Evan Bernick. So thank you very much for being with us today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this talk. <laughs>